Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. It's great to see you today. Now, I want to start by addressing the issue once and for all. I mean, week after week, a question comes up that we need to settle, and that is, I want you to look at the background on the stage and tell me what you see. Okay, some people say they see Miss Piggy. How many Miss Piggy people are there here? All right, now other people say they see Yogi Bear. Any Yogi, anybody see the smarter than the average bear in the screen there? All right, what else do you see? An alien, absolutely the alien. There he is. And so with the current rise in the government declassifying videos about UFOs, or uh, UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, uh, the alien just kind of jumps off the screen at me, and if you know anything about aliens, you know this is one of the little gray aliens. So, um, Now, how many of you have never given the background a second thought? <laughs> uh, okay, so, my, the, so, so, the, so the question is, what does this have to do with anything? Well, nothing but everything. Uh, my point is, the longer you look at something, the more you see. The longer you look at something, the more you see. That's true, isn't it? I mean, now, kids, I want you to help me with this because uh, the longer you look at clouds, the more you see. So kids, shout out, what do you see? A bunny, of course there's a bunny there. All right, what about this picture? A lion cub, exactly. And what about this one? A duck, that's right. Some of you adults could not resist just joining in with the kids there. But uh, the point is, the longer you look at something, the more you see. Now, when I was in graduate school at Florida State University, getting enough hours to teach high school science, I was given an assignment to build a cricket city, an enclosed environment, kind of like an aquarium type thing, and I had it all decorated with little tubes and buildings for the crickets so they could have fun in Cricket City. And, uh, my, and the assignment that I had was that I had to spend an hour a day in the lab staring into Cricket City and learn everything I could about crickets. I could not look up anything in encyclopedias or books about crickets. I had to, I had to look at the crickets and make observations and write them all down. And so this whole thing, I know, I know, it's like I paid for this class, like tuition for this. Like I, but anyway, it was all about developing the powers of observation. By the end of the semester, I had to write a paper, and I think the paper was 10 or 12 pages, on what I had learned about crickets, and most of which I have forgotten. But I do remember how to identify male and female crickets, and you might not know this, so you know this is one of the things that you learn when you come to church on Sunday. So um, the female cricket has this long needle-like tube uh, at the end of her abdomen, and I learned that I watched this, you know, as I saw them mating. Then, uh, you know, a little while longer, I'd see the cricket laying eggs, and that's the female has that little tube there is what she lays her eggs in the ground with and produces more crickets. So uh, again, my point is, the longer you look at something, the more you see. Now, all that to say, the longer you look at Scripture, the more you see, which is why you can never exhaust the richness of the amazing depth of Scripture because uh, the more you read Scripture, the more you meditate and reflect on Scripture, the more ahas you have and the more insights you receive and the more it works its way into the very core of who you are and affects how you live your life. And I think we have been seeing that uh, this summer, the longer we have looked at this series that we're in, which is called The Words We Use, and how God's Word shapes our words. And the more we've been doing that, the more we're seeing how many times uh, how out of sync our words are with God's Word. And it's not a good thing that that's happened, but it's a good thing to see it. Now, last week, Jim talked about words of witness and he did a great job answering the question that he proposed. And the question was this, how do we talk to people who aren't trusting Jesus about the real and eternal life that's available in and through him? And that's a great question. Another way to ask the question, my friend Todd puts it this way, how do you talk to people who are far from God but close to you? How do you talk to people who are far from God but close to you? I like that. And by close, I don't just mean the people in your family 
or the people you work with or your next door neighbor. I mean all the people that are in your network that you're close to, like the people that you see at school events and, uh, uh, or at school or the people uh, that you're around uh, during swim team and soccer practice with your kids. I mean all the people in your circles of influence who are close to you but far from God. So the question is, what do faithful words of witness look like? What do faithful words of witness look like? That's the question. And last week, Jim walked us through the book of Acts, and we looked at four passages of scripture, or as he said, four pictures from the book of Acts of what faithful words of witness sound like. And Jim laid a great foundation for that um, last week. And, uh, but, but I tell you, the longer that I've looked at those passages, the more that I see and the more that I want you to see. And so here's my game plan for this morning. I'm gonna revisit just two of the passages that Jim covered last week, and I'm gonna review his main points from those passages, and then I wanna spend a bit more time looking at the passages and, and taking them down one more level. So you with me? That's the game plan, let's jump in. So the first picture, uh, first passage I wanna revisit is well, Peter's actually first two sermons in the book of Acts as they're recorded in Acts 2 and 3. Now, Jim only covered Peter's sermon in Acts 3, but I see something in both sermons that's worth digging into a little deeper. Now, here's my point. When Peter speaks to the Jews in Jerusalem, many of the very same Jews who about a month ago were screaming and demanding that Jesus be crucified, when, people, when Peter speaks to people like that, he uses lots of Old Testament scripture to help them see, to prove to them that the Jesus they crucified was in fact the Messiah they always wanted. He quotes scripture to convince religious people that the way to be forgiven and to have the life that Jesus died to give us, it comes through faith and not through works. Forgiveness and life come through a personal relationship with Jesus, not through a religious system of do's and don'ts. Now, for time's sake, I'm not gonna read through these two sermons. Jim covered Acts 3 last week. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna point out all the scriptures in which Peter anchors his message to show you what I'm talking about. So just listen to this. You can go back and read Acts 2 and 3, but here's what I wanna point out. In his first sermon... In chapter two, verses 17 to 21, Peter quotes from the prophets, Joel and Ezekiel. And in verses 25 to 28, he quotes what David said about the Messiah in Psalm 16. And then in verses 34 and 35, he quotes David again, this time from Psalm 110. And then in his second sermon in Acts chapter three, uh, verses 22 to 24, he quotes Moses from Deuteronomy 18, and then in uh, verses 25 to 26, he quotes God's promise to Abraham, uh, recorded in Genesis 12 and 22, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed by the descendants, or through the descendants of Abraham, especially the descendant of Abraham, who is Jesus. And you can go back, and you can read through the passage later, but my simple point is this. The question is, what do faithful words of witness look like? And my answer is, when you're talking to religious people, people from rural and ritual-based church backgrounds, people who think that God will accept them based on how good they are, people who think that if you just try to be good and do good, then in the end, God will be pleased with you. When you're talking to people like that, anchor your faithful words of witness in scripture. For example, uh, when I find myself talking to someone from a Catholic background, a lot of times I'll ask them, especially if I'm in their home, if I can use their Catholic Bible. And uh, if, I, if, if I'm not in a situation like that, then I pull up the Catholic Bible on my Bible app, which is, if you wanna look for it, it's the New American Bible. That's the one that most Catholic churches use, it, use and Catholic lay people use. And so what I do is I show them in their Bible how that being good and doing good isn't enough. And I show them how the scriptures teach us that salvation comes to everyone who puts their faith in Jesus as a gift. 
Like I'll turn to, and many of you know this verse, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. I read the verse, or sometimes I'll just say, would you read this to me? And they'll read it, and I'll say, now tell me how you hear that. I'll ask them to explain it to me. And then we talk about it, and I go through the passage point by point, like I talk about grace. Like when God talks about uh, what we need to be saved to get the forgiveness and life that Jesus offers us, he makes it clear that his salvation doesn't come through what we do. Do you see that in the verse? It doesn't come by our own doing. It's not the result of our good works. It comes as a gift to all those who put their faith in Jesus and what he did for us when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. And I explain how that adding good works to Jesus' good work on the cross is like saying that his death on the cross wasn't good enough, something I don't think any of us want to say. And I asked them then if they would like to transfer their trust uh, in their own good works to trust Christ and Christ alone for salvation. Now, another verse that I sometimes use is Titus 3, 5 through 7. And Paul writes to Titus, he says that God saved us, not because of the works that we have done in righteousness, not because of the works we've done to be right with God, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified or made right with God by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, this one's a little um, uh, more complex passage, so I, just exp I usually just explain this one, but I'll say, you see in this passage that God saves us, he gifts us, Forgiveness in life, not because of the works we have done to make us right with God, but because God extends, look at the words, mercy and grace to us when he washes us clean from our sins and puts his very own spirit inside us. And I explained that that happens when we first trust Christ and Christ alone for salvation. Now, uh, there are people, though, from Protestant backgrounds who are just as confused about God's grace way of salvation. Because I visited in the homes of senior adults who grew up in the church, Baptist churches, where the gospel was taught, but years of regret and shame beat down hard on them. And there are things that they wish that they, that they did that they wish they'd never done. And there are things they did that they wish they could go back and undo. But of course, they're at the end of their life and they can't go back. And so I notice there's this huge guilt and this fear if God is gonna accept them when they die. So I will say, do, do you know for sure that when you pass into the presence of God, that God will welcome you into his heaven? Do you know that for sure? And they'll usually look at me and say, well, I hope so. They hope so, but they don't know so. And so I draw three circles on a piece of paper. And I say, you know, some people think that being good and doing good are all that God requires from us to live with them in heaven. They say, if you try your best, God will see that you've tried to live a good life and he'll be satisfied with that. So some people say that good works are good enough. Other people say, no, good works are important, but they're not enough. You do have to believe in Jesus, but it's kind of like you believe in Jesus, and that's kind of like he gets you onto the football field, but you've got to run the ball to the goal line. So it's kind of a, a Jesus plus good works proposition that earns you the right to be with God in heaven one day. So Jesus plus good works. And then I say, but, but then there other people who say, no, 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 it's neither circle one or circle two. It's faith alone in Christ alone that makes us right with God. And good works are something that we do after putting our faith in Christ as a way of showing our gratitude to God for what he's done for us. And then I'll ask them, which circle represents what you believe? Nine times out of 10, when I've been in that kind of situation, the person will say, circle number two, the circle in the middle. 
and I asked them to tell me the story of when they first put their faith in, in Christ. And I'll ask them about their church background and that kind of thing. And then I ask, um, what, makes, what makes you not be sure uh, that you are saved? And they typically will say something like, well, I don't know if I've been good enough. Or I haven't always been as good as I should have been. Or I do believe in Jesus, but I've made some mistakes in my life <clears throat> and I don't know if God will forgive me. And sometimes I'll turn to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and walk them through the gospel from that passage like I did with you a moment ago. Sometimes, though, I'll turn to John 5, 24. I'll say, here's what Jesus says to you. This is really good news. Now, I want you to hear this. Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, look at this, has, that's present tense, and goes on forever, has eternal life. That person doesn't come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. And I'll say, Jesus tells us that if we put our faith in him and him alone, we will not come under the condemning judgment of God, but at the moment we first trust Christ for salvation, at that moment we pass from death to life. And that life, Jesus says, is eternal life, meaning once you have it, it won't be taken away from you. Even when you mess up, even when you make big mistakes, his forgiveness covers that. And so it's faith alone in Christ alone is what saves us. It's faith alone that keeps us secure in the hand of God. And I'll say, you know, one day Jesus was talking to a bunch of people who thought they had to be good and do good to earn God's favor. And they asked him a question, and here's what they asked. They said, and I'll turn to John 6, 28. They said, what must we do that we might do the works of God? In other words, what good works must we do so God will be pleased with us? That's what they're asking. And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who's, whom he has sent. You see, Jesus always makes the issue belief, trust, faith. And he put it so simply in John chapter six, verse 47, just a few more verses down the page, I tell you the truth, whoever believes in me has eternal life. Seems to me, if Jesus is telling us the truth, and he is, then we need to believe what he tells us. And he's promising eternal life to all who trust him to give it to them as a gift. And once you have it, it's yours forever. Listen to Jesus one more time, John 10, 28 and 29. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. Now look at this. No one can take them out of Jesus' hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. So your security rests in the fact that Jesus holds you in his hand and God the Father holds you in his hand so you are double clutched by the hands of God. You see that? And then I'll ask him if they'd like to pray along with me to put their faith in Jesus or to reaffirm their faith in Jesus. And after we pray, I'll turn to one more passage of scripture, 1 John 5, 10 through 13. And I'll read this to them. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony, has the truth in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the truth that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the truth, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has the life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have the life. And I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. One time I was sharing with an older adult and she said, well, see, it says you may know, but you may not know. And I said, no, 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 that's, that's not what it means. So I said, so I said, so what this verse is saying is God's given us eternal life. He says this, if this, pretend like this book is eternal life. This life is in Jesus, his son. So if you trusted Jesus, what do you have? You have Jesus and you have the life. If you don't trust Jesus, 
You don't have either one. And so that's, you know, I explain it that way. Now, and so I'll say, God wants you to know that you know that you know that you have eternal life, that the eternal life that Jesus died to make possible. And he wants you to have the confidence and the assurance that if you put your faith in Jesus, you will one day be with God in his heaven. In that great passage Matt read, read to us earlier. Now I'm gonna ask you a question. Like, how hard is it to do that? Like what I just did. I mean, it's not that hard. You can do this. It's not that hard. You just need to know seven passages. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Titus 3, 5, and 7. John 5, 24. John 6, 28, 29. John 6, 47. John 10, 28, and 29. 1 John 5, 10, 13. Now, there's lots of other scriptures. But you just need to know seven scriptures. Just knowing these seven passages and being able to walk someone through them can lead someone from darkness to light and from death to life. Now, last week, Jim's point was know God's word as a witness to people who are confused about God. These are seven passages you need to know from God's word. These are faithful words of witness you need to know because these seven passages can help religious people who are confused about God and about what God requires for us to have eternal life. It can help them trust Christ and Christ alone for salvation. So when you talk to religious people, use scripture to point them to Jesus and the by grace through faith way of salvation he died to make possible. That's my first point. Second point, the second picture that I wanna uh, revisit from last week is Paul's sermon to the Greek philosophers in Acts 17. And here's my point in this second point. In Acts two and three, when Peter speaks to the religious-minded Jews in Jerusalem, he quotes scripture. But when Paul speaks to non-religious people or irreligious people in Acts 17, he talks the scripture. Peter quotes the Bible, Paul talks the Bible. Now let me show you, follow along as I read here, Acts 17 beginning in verse one. Actually, Paul begins the way Peter does. So Paul and Peter have the same methodology when they're talking to the Jews. Look at this. Now, when they had passed through um, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with those Jews from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to rise and to suffer from the dead, and rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus who I'm proclaimed to you is the Christ. So notice here, Paul speaking to the Jews, he does exactly what Peter does. He reasoned from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and die and rise from the dead, which again, which is exactly what Peter did. So this underscores my first point. When you talk to religious people, use the scriptures to point them to Jesus and the by grace way of salvation that he died to make possible. Now look down at verse 16. Paul moves on to Athens and he comes into that city and he is disturbed in his spirit because the city is full of idols made of gold and silver and stone and he's really bothered inside. But he, when he gets to Athens, he does what he always does and that is he goes to the synagogue to talk to the Jews first. Acts seven, uh, verse 17, he, so he reasoned in the synagogue using scripture with the Jews and the devout and the religious people, the devout people. But he also went out into the marketplace every day and he shared Jesus, I'm just amplifying this a little bit, with those who happened to be there. Now there were some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who conversed with him and some said, what's this babbler trying to say? Others said, well, he seems to be a preacher who believes in foreign deities, divinities, and, because, and they said that because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And, and so they took him and they brought him to the Aragopagus. And he said, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting for you bring to us some strange things. 
What you're saying is strange to our ears, and we wish to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend a lot of their time in nothing except telling or hearing about something new. So first, Paul spoke to the Jews in the synagogue using the scriptures, but then he also went outside speaking in the marketplace, and what he was teaching to these Greeks, secular, pagan people, was very strange sounding to them. Greek philosophers stopped to listen to him. They never heard about Jesus, never heard about the resurrection, and, his, and, and, uh, and so these people were not church background people. So quoting Bible verses to them wouldn't mean anything to them. It would just sound strange to them. So listen to Paul's faithful words of witness. Listen to how he begins. He sees something in the culture and he springboards off of that issue and he talks scriptural truth to them. He doesn't quote verses. He talks scriptural truth to them. Verse 22. Paul said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. Not religious like the Jews, you understand. But religious as in having an interest in spiritual things. Uh, pagan spirituality. Verse 23. For I pass, as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship and I found an altar with the inscription. The inscription was to the unknown God. And therefore, what you worship as unknown that's what I want to talk about. So he springboards off of this cultural issue. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, that's Genesis, does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. That's like Genesis 10 having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your poets have said, we are indeed God's offspring. Now right here, Paul talks scripture because this phrase, in him we live and move and have our being, that's a paraphrase of Job twelve twenty. But interestingly enough, it also coincides with something Epimenides, a Cretan mystic, said as well. So Paul is going, there's, Bible tr there's scriptural truth that coincides with some of the things that you believe in your culture. Verse 26, 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And God, at the times of ignorance about things like that, God's overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this man, he has given us assurance by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and rejected it out of hand. But others said, we want to, we want to hear you talk about this some more. And so Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, which tells me, usually when they're talking about believe, we're talking about saving faith here, so you can't get saved by what Paul said, so he had to spend more time explaining Jesus to these people. But some men joined him and believed, joined him, and they learned more and believed, among whom were uh, Dionysius and the Areopagite, uh, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Now, Jim's point from this passage last week was understand how culture thinks as a way to engage others where they are. Understand how the culture thinks as a way to engage others where they are. And so the longer that I have looked at Acts 17 and Jim's great observation here, the more I see and the more I want you to see. My point is this, when you talk to irreligious people Begin by talking the scriptures to them in a way that they can understand. Talk the scriptures to them in a way they can understand. For example, I was talking with a young man who didn't really have much of a church background at all, but he was very much convinced that God would accept him, if there was a God, then that God would accept him based on the fact that he was a good per person. 
Not a perfect person, you understand, but better than a lot of people were his exact words. So I just said to him, you know, I think a lot of people think that way, but it's interesting. One day I was thinking about that, and it hit me that when Jesus walked this earth, he didn't hang out with really good people. He liked to hang out with really bad people, people who were despised by the good and decent people. I mean, isn't that strange? In fact, Jesus tells a story about a, good, a really good, decent, church-going person who stood out on the temple steps, and he looked out at the people around him, and this good man prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like those people, unjust, adulterers, cheaters, crooks, people who like to rip other people off, but God, I am a decent, moral, upstanding, respectable man, and I give my money to the poor and to good causes, give my money to the church, tithe on all my income. Now, Jesus said that very same day, there was another man standing outside the temple, and he wouldn't go in. He didn't feel worthy, so he stood outside in the shadows, and he prayed, God, I know who I am, and I know what I've done. Be merciful to me. I know I'm a sinner. Now, the amazing thing is that Jesus said that man, not the really good, decent, upstanding, moral man, that man went home that day right with God. And it hit me. The reason Jesus hung out with really bad people was because they knew they would never be good enough to get what Jesus was offering unless he gave it to them as a gift. And I looked across the table after I made that statement and the man I was talking to who had been, who was a retired religion professor from a local university, I noticed a tear in his eye and he said, I know I'll never be good enough. And, and I said, the good news is you are right where you need to be to receive God's gift of forgiveness in life. Is that something you'd like to talk more about? Another time I was talking to a high school senior and, um, and she asked me, where did God come from? Which was kind of strange to me because the question I've always heard people ask is, and you've heard this and I wrote a whole book on it, you know, the runaway bride little book. If God's so good and he's so powerful, then why is the world so messed up? Well, I've noticed in this generation, this where did God come from, this question was, I, I heard this question asked about a half a dozen times within six months. So she asks, you know, where did God come from? So I say, before I can get at that question, I gotta lay a little bit of a foundation. So I said, you know, when it comes to the question of origins, like where did all this come from and how did it all begin, there really are only two answers. Science says that everything in the universe is moving away from a single point of origin. The universe is running down. And if you apply the second law of thermodynamics, it says if you run time backwards, then all the matter of the universe gets compressed into a single subatomic particle that's something like 10 to the minus 48th power small. Basically, as Alan Guth at MIT said years and years ago, the whole universe came from nothing, from a subatomic particle that decided one day to just explode and create everything in the universe, and it just happened, and it happened by chance. Now, nobody knows where the particle came from and nobody knows what caused the particle to explode. Science can't answer that question. Where did the particle come from? Now, that's the first option. Scripture teaches that there's a God who created the world and everything in it. He created everything in the universe with intentionality and purpose. And everything we see, all the beauty and intricacy of creation has been designed to show us how good and beautiful God is. Remember, science can't tell you where that subatomic particle came from and no one can tell you where God came from. But scripture tells us that God has always been. But science can't tell you anything about where the particle came from, unless of course it came from God. 
So you're left with a choice. You can believe that the whole universe, everything you see and hear and touch and smell and feel, that you can believe it all came about by chance, which means nothing has any meaning or purpose. Or you can believe that God created everything on purpose and for a purpose, and that means he created you on purpose and for a purpose, and it's gotta be one or the other. Do you see that? And she shook her head, yeah, I see it. I said, but the really interesting thing is this, because see, you don't wanna stop there, you wanna go to Jesus. Everything leads to Jesus. But the really interesting thing is this, the scripture teaches that the creator God of the universe actually has a name. And I said, here's what John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, said about Jesus. Now remember, I'm talking the scripture, but I'm gonna quote this passage pretty close. But I'm gonna talk it. So I said, in the, John says about Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God, and everything that was made was made by him, and nothing was made apart from him. And the word became one of us and lived among us. And we saw his goodness and his greatness and we saw grace and truth in the action. And his name is Jesus. And I said, it's really amazing to think about Jesus being the creator God of everything and he wants to have a personal relationship with me to give my life meaning and purpose. And I said, would you like to talk more about who Jesus is and why he came and what it looks like to trust and follow him? Another time, I was talking with a young girl, a student who was struggling with the big cultural question of gender identity. And she was beginning to identify as a male. And she asked, why did God create me this way? Why did God create me this way? And I said, well, just from where I'm sitting, it seems to me that God made you female. Like you have female XX chromosomes, so genetically you're female. And physically, you're female. Biologi you have bi biological abilities that I don't have, like you can have babies and nurse babies, something I can't do and men can't do. And so it seems to me that both science and the scriptures agree that you're female. So could it be that your question really is, why do I feel this way? Could that be your question? She goes, yeah, maybe, I, I guess so. All right, so why do I feel this way? And I said, well, there could be several reasons, but let, let me throw something out and you see if it rings true. Let me come at the, your question this way, and you gotta stay with me because this is gonna sound like it's really off the wall. That's what I said to her. I said, I'm a Jeep guy. I love driving my Jeep Sahara Wrangler. And I like it that other people driving Jeeps wave at me when I'm going down the road. And I love waving back at other Jeepers because it makes me feel connected. Makes me feel like I'm in this community with other cool people who drive Jeeps. And that just feels good to me. And I said, I'm, I'm not a Mini Cooper guy. I'm not a Kia guy. I'm not a Cherokee guy or, you know, or any of the other Jeeps, just a Jeep Wrangler. And I'm not a minivan guy, thankfully, not anymore. I self-identify as a Jeep Wrangler guy. And I said, so is it possible that over time at school, you met some students who self-identify as trans? And when you started hanging out with those students, you felt welcomed and you felt accepted and you felt affirmed and you just seemed to fit, maybe even fit better in, with those people than you did with your hetero friends. And over time, you began to self-identify as trans. And could it be that now you're a bit conflicted because there's a part of you who knows that God made you female, but it feels so right, it feels so good to you to be in a community of people who accept you and so you have begun to self-identify with them. And she said, well, I never really thought about it like that. I said, well, again, I'm sorry to use the Jeep guy illustration, and she interrupted me. 
And she said, no, 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 I think that's a really good illustration. So I went on to say, you know, everybody's in search of an identity. The clothes we wear, the cars we drive, the people we hang out with, the job we have, the money we make, beauty, health. We look to all kinds of things to give us an identity that gives us some kind of meaning and purpose in life. But the problem with all those things is that none of them are solid enough to build an identity upon because they can all be taken away from us. Our identities have to be built on something weightier, something solid, something that will last. So you see, only God can give you an identity that has meaning and purpose that transcends anything this world offers you. And only Jesus can give you a lasting identity as a child of God, as someone loved so much by God that Jesus died for you to bring, him, bring you into his family. And so I ask her, would you like to talk more about what that looks like? You see, Jim's point was, understand how culture thinks as a way to engage others where they are. And taking it down one level, my point is when you talk to irreligious people, talk the scriptures to them in a way that they can understand, in a way that doesn't sound so strange to them. And I'm telling you, most secular people today cannot understand the traditional ways we shared the gospel in the 60s and 50s and 80s. It's like you're trying to give them a diamond, but there's no setting for the ring. They don't understand. It sounds strange to them to share the Romans road or the bridge or the four laws, which I love all of those things. And there's places in the world like Colombia, uh, South America and Kenya and Africa. You can go around and you can share the way you way that I was taught to share. And people hear the gospel and they receive the gospel. But these secular people with no church background, there is far away from God as the Greek philosophers in Mars Hill in Romans at Acts 17. Now, I'm reading a book right now that I want to recommend to you for summer reading that will help you get your mind around everything that Jim and I have been saying over the last two weeks, but it takes, this book takes everything down another level. And the book is called uh, How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. (laughs) And it's by uh, an Asian guy Uh, Sam Chan, who lives in Australia, which is a very secular country, uh, more so than us. But this book is really good. It's only 140 pages, so it's thin. So, you know, this is the second book I've recommended this summer, and my first one was Taming the Tongue, and it was thin like this, so you can actually get through this. It's an easy read. It is a breezy read, and it, it, it will just, you'll love it. Now, here's what Sam Chan writes in his book. I love this. He says, In the Bible, God gives us a huge variety of stories and images and emotions and metaphors designed to reach each and every person exactly where they are and connect with them emotionally, culturally, and existentially. No matter who your friends are and what they've been through, the Bible has a story about Jesus that will speak to them. And he goes on to give a two-page list of Jesus stories that intersect where people are living today. For example, he writes, if your friends are burdened by guilt and the need of forgiveness, tell them the story of Jesus and the tax collector who is justified by God in Luke 18. Now that's the story I just told a minute ago and my point in using that story was I made the point that God gives forgiveness in life to those who know they'll never be good enough to earn it or deserve it because of the good things they do. But you can use that story to talk about guilt and the need of forgiveness and how God makes you right when you humble yourself before him. If your friends are burdened by shame and need restoration, tell them the story of Jesus cleansing and restoring the bleeding woman in Luke chapter eight. And you're gonna have to work a little bit on that, but that story can be retold about how Jesus pauses for this woman who, in our language, that you'd never say this, you know, if you're talking to a secular person, but the woman with the issue of blood but how he took time with her and healed her. If your friends are far from God, maybe at one point they turned their back on God and and went away, tell them how God the Father welcomes us back into his home as his dearly beloved children. Use the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. 
If your friends are restless and exhausted, tell them how Jesus cares for them, and he will give them rest, Matthew 11, verse 28. If your friends live in fear of evil spirits, and that's on the rise today, especially in Asian cultures or people who have occult backgrounds, tell them the story of Jesus driving out demons who tremble and flee before him, Luke chapter four. If your friends are empty, outcast, broken, unfulfilled, tell them how Jesus offered the shamed, outcast, broken Samaritan woman living water that overflows into a full, fulfilled, eternal life in John chapter four. If your friends are afraid of death and the afterlife, tell them about Jesus' conversation with Martha and Mary and how he rose, uh, raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11. If your friends feel they have let God down too many times, tell them the story of how Jesus restored Peter, who disowned him three times, and he gives a ton more examples. Now look, for those of you that were raised in Sunday school, you know these stories. You know them from Sunday school, and you can talk these stories to people who need to hear a better story than the one that they've been living. And the better story is Jesus, because Jesus is the ultimate faithful word of witness. Yeah, the longer I look at these passages, the more I see. To summarize, when you talk to religious people, use scripture to point them to Jesus and the by grace through faith way of salvation he died to make possible. That is as simple as knowing seven key passages of scripture that help people better understand that God saves us by the, through the work of Christ, not through our good works. When you talk to irreligious people, begin by talking the scripture to them in a way that they can understand, and that can be as simple as telling people the stories you learned about Jesus in Sunday school, or if you came to Christ later, the, sto the, the stories that you've learned about Jesus by reading the gospels for yourself. So you begin with the cultural question, but you always end up at Jesus. Now, two final points and I'm done. First, one of the most powerful statements found in the book of Acts comes out of Acts chapter four. Peter and John had healed a crippled man and it caused a huge ruckus and they got arrested and thrown in jail and the religious authorities threatened them to never speak about Jesus again. And this is what they said to the religious leaders in Acts chapter four, verse 19. They said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you gotta make up your mind, you gotta judge. But I'll tell you this, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We can't stop talking about Jesus. And that right there is why the early church exploded in growth. That right there is why the gospel message of the early church was irresistible that right there is why the church grew in the midst of persecution. Why? We can't stop talking about Jesus. I'm telling you, until the church in this country regains the passion of Peter and John and the early disciples to talk about Jesus, we're dead in the water. The church, as we know it, is going to die because as great as what we're doing in here this is this morning, this is not the mission so I ask you, have you stopped talking about Jesus? Is it important for you to talk about Jesus? It grieves me that in the church today, many Christians have a passion uh, that we can't stop talking about, but it's not Jesus. Like we can't stop talking about Netflix, or we can't stop talking about sports, or we can't stop talking about the news, or we can't stop talking about politics. Or we can't stop talking about the next thing that we want to buy. We can't stop talking about the next place we want to go. We can't stop talking about our problems. Sadly, the church in this country has found a whole lot of things that we can't stop talking about, and most of those things have little or nothing to do with Jesus. So my final first point, my first final point, is this. We, you, me, I desperately need the Holy Spirit to reignite a passion for talking about Jesus. We desperately need the Holy Spirit to do something in our hearts and in our lives and our minds to give us a passion to talk about Jesus. Now my second final point is this, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit 
to speak through us as we step out in faith to talk about Jesus. We need to rely on the Spirit to speak through us as we step out in faith to talk about Jesus. Now, all but one illustration I gave you this morning of the conversations I've had with people, well, let me just, all of them, really, all of them. Not a single one did I learn in an evangelism class. Not a single one of them did I read in a book. The Holy Spirit gave them to me in the moment so that when I walked out, I'm scratching my head going, where did that come from? I better write that down. Like, the Holy Spirit gave them to me in the moment. The Holy Spirit pulled this thought and this thought and this thought and, and, and put this Jesus story in there and the Holy Spirit gave me faithful words of witness. And the Holy Spirit used what I said to bring ahas to the minds of the hearers. Some trusted Christ as a result. Others needed more time and discussion. Some said, this is one guy said, he said, you're the first person I've ever talked to about this kind of stuff that's not a nutcase. He said, I understand what you're saying. I'm just not sure I believe it. But you know what? Our job is to simply be the messenger. You talk about Jesus, you tell the better story about Jesus, and you leave the results to God. Now this weekend we're celebrating July 4th and the freedom we have in this country to gather for worship. And we're celebrating the freedom we have to talk about Jesus without being arrested and threatened to not talk about Jesus. Just north of our border in Canada, a pastor was arrested for inciting people to come to church. You understand we're just a little bit behind that. We still have those freedoms, the freedoms of worship and witness, and we need to live fully into those freedoms as the days grow darker, and we need to do it for the greater fame of Jesus. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, reignite a passion in us to talk about Jesus with people who are far from you but close to us. Even in this moment, Holy Spirit, we invite you to bring to our minds the names of people that you might want us to talk to, people in whom you are already working to prepare them to hear about Jesus from our lips. Give us sensitivity to know when a door opens. Give us wisdom and words in what we share and how we share it. And give us the courage to open our mouths and let you fill them with faithful words of witness. Holy Spirit, I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.